It's hurricane season again, and our hearts go out to all those who are being affected by Hurricane Florence. I mean, here in New Jersey and New York, we know from firsthand experience the devastation that a major hurricane can bring. So we can sympathize with them this morning. The forces of nature are powerful, and our own capabilities pale in comparison to what we see unleashed in a great storm. We humans get humbled before the might of what we call a natural disaster. And inevitably, someone attaches a greater meaning to the events that we see in nature. Some folks see God's invisible hand of judgment at work behind the storm. They look to natural disaster for signs that tell them that, you know, the end of the world is near, that God's wrath is being poured out. Like last summer's total eclipse, you know, when the moon briefly blocked out the sun. Some people saw that as a heavenly omen, a sign, a, a portent of God's coming. After last summer's storms, Ahmed Mansour, an Egyptian journalist with Al Jazeera, boasted on Facebook that the hurricanes were a sign that Allah was bringing punishment on America, the great Satan. And surprisingly enough, a number of fundamentalist Christian preachers sort of agreed with him. They too saw God's punishment in the winds, but for different reasons. This week I saw an article that blamed Hurricane Florence on Donald Trump. Now, I don't know what he did to cause a hurricane, but that's the kind of wacky world we now live in. But as Christian author Max Lucado writes, if hurricanes are really sent as a sign of judgment from God, then God has rotten aim, right? I mean, if God is punishing Trump or other politicians, then he ought to be sending that hurricane right over the top of Washington, D.C. Shouldn't send it on the poor people of the Carolinas. You know, human beings have always looked to the heavens and to nature for signs from God, for either God's blessing or God's punishment. And if you want to find someone to blame for the way that people interpret natural phenomenon as divine messengers that anticipate a judgmental God coming in wrath against humanity, then you could put that squarely on the shoulders of the Old Testament prophet Joel, whose book of the Bible is our focus today. Joel was the one who coined the phrase, the day of the Lord, referring to a day of final judgment when God would, would cleanse the earth of all evil and exploitation, all sin and disobedience, all suffering and pain, all injustice and decay. God will wipe it all away, according to Joel. Even though Joel only has three chapters, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, he uses that phrase, the day of the Lord, five times just to get his point across. In fact, today, whenever anybody wants to quote the Bible on some natural disaster as an act of the hand of God, they usually quote from Joel. I mean, in that sense, his nickname could be the master of disaster. Now, if, before you get all mad at Joel and get all up in his grill about his prophecies of doom and gloom, you may need to remember that Jesus actually said the exact same thing. Jesus actually uses some of the same phrases, some of the same ideas as Joel when he describes what the future will bring. Here's just one place that does so. Luke chapter 21, starting with verse 25. Jesus says, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity. At the roaring and tossing of the sea, people will faint from terror. Apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when those things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, I like the way that passage is rendered 
in the message paraphrase version of the Bible. Let me read it that way. It will seem like all hell has broken loose. Sun, moon, stars, earth, sea, all in an uproar. And everyone all over the world in a panic. The wind knocked out of them by the threat of doom. The powers that be quaking. And then, then, then they'll see the Son of Man welcomed in grand style, a glorious welcome. When all this starts to happen, stand up on your feet, stand tall with your heads high. Help is on the way. That's Jesus talking. But it's all straight out of Joel and the other Old Testament prophets. You see, rather than reject what the ancient prophets taught, Jesus endorsed, clarified, and expanded on what they predicted. So understanding the way Jesus spoke about the prophets and the end times it helps us correct one of the very common misunderstandings about the Bible that I hear people say all the time. That misunderstanding goes like this. Uh, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God full of judgment and violence. Uh, he's got all these commandments he expects us to obey. And, and that God stands in contrast to the God of New Testament, who is a God of love and total acceptance, who just takes us as we are and basically lets us do whatever we want. In other words, God has revolved from being, being this angry God to being a God of total love. And it's like there are actually two different gods, one for the Old Testament and one for the New. But this idea of an Old Testament God of wrath and a New Testament God of love is really a figment of the popular imagination. If we look at this just a little bit deeper this morning, the God of the New Testament, clearly a God of love. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the very simplest declaration or definition of God's nature. God is love. No doubt about it. We see God's love at work at the Messiah Jesus as he heals the sick and gives hope to the distressed, as he forgives sin as, as, and, and through love goes to the cross on our behalf to be our substitute, to take all of God's wrath upon himself. He did that for us. So yes, the New Testament shows us a God of love, but that does not mean God simply turns a blind eye to our disobedience or brokenness. If anything, it shows that the God of the New Testament takes judgment very seriously. I mean, just look at the cross. It's at the cross that God's holiness and God's love meet in unity and harmony, and it's a tough love. God's love does not mean he accepts everything and anything we might do. He's not a, you know, boys will be boys kind of God who just lets things slide. As Pastor Tim Keller says, the gospel says, come as you are, not stay as you are. God loves us just as he are, but he also loves us too much to let us stay that way. His love is a transforming grace that does judge evil, but then Christ also provides the way of grace to overcome its hold on your heart and to lead you into a new life in him. And Jesus also talked more about the coming day of judgment than almost anybody else in the whole Bible. I mean, sprinkled throughout the Gospels, very, Jesus very clearly warns people that a day is coming and people need to be ready. So many of his parables are about that day when God will come to judge. So Jesus, as the last great prophet, calls people to turn back to the Father just as Joel and the other prophets did. And the God of the Old Covenant is anything but this relentlessly bad-tempered grouch some people make him out to be. The Old Testament scriptures constantly describe God as a God of love and mercy. Those great verses from Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, 
or repay us according to our iniquities. Or Psalm 100, verse 5. The Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. As a matter of fact, you'll find this dual thread of God's love and God's judgment woven throughout the entire Bible. His nature is not divided. His nature is not confused. All, and I mean all of the biblical authors agree that God's love and God's judgment are actually two sides of the same coin. You know, fire can burn and fire can also provide warmth and comfort. It all depends on where we stand in relationship to the flame. Both sides of the Bible, old and new, reflect this truth. God is a God of love and a God of holiness. The big problem is that people get confused and only focus on one or the other because people just kind of naturally gravitate towards simplistic answers. They, they can't seem to hold in tension God's love and God's holiness. And so people drift towards simplifications because it's just easier. To understand what is going on in Joel, or in Jesus' preaching for that matter, we have to understand that God has this long-range view of human history. God's the one who got human history started. And he has a plan all laid out for where it's going. Nothing takes him by surprise, and nothing will deter him from carrying out his will when it comes to his creation. God created, and at the time of his own choosing, God will conclude. Why? Because he's God, and he's got sovereign power over all things. If he doesn't have sovereign power over all things, then he's not a God worth worrying about. He's something less than God. Because to be God, you must be supreme. And from God's point of view, history's going somewhere. Did you ever, as a child, play the Connect the Dots game? My parents used to give my brother and sister and I these Connect the Dot games books to pass the time when we were in cars on long trips. You draw lines connecting the numbered dots and eventually a picture appears. Most people today that think, that, uh, think of life as a connect the dots game, but no picture ever appears. It's just a series of unrelated random dots, random events, and no one can really predict what's going to happen. No one can know what the future holds. It's all up in the air. And people are afraid that we as human beings, we're going to find some way to destroy ourselves or Mother Earth. And if people think that way about the bigger world, then what does that say about their own personal lives? Well, then their own personal lives is just a random chaos. There's no rhyme or reason, no larger purpose. Their own life is just a random collection of dots, and no picture will emerge for them personally either. But the Bible teaches that history is going somewhere. History is his story. It is the story of God's redemptive work, ultimately bringing the world into harmony with himself. God knows the end from the beginning. And he's going to bring his conclusion in his own time. In the meanwhile, God allows us real freedom under that larger umbrella. We make real choices. We experience joy, great hurt. We make mistakes. We make progress. Nations rise and fall. Kingdoms come and go. We live life, but all under this greater umbrella of his ultimate will. The prophet's job was to call people back to an understanding of God's loving sovereignty overall. And God gave the prophets glimpses of what lay ahead. Now imagine you're standing on a mountaintop looking out on a vast range of mountain peaks that lay before you. For the prophets, there were four peaks that would chart the course of human history. And the prophet spoke of all four of those moments, sometimes all at the same time. The hard thing in reading and understanding the prophets is that those four different points get all interwoven in the prophet's teaching, so it's difficult to distinguish which one of these mountain peaks he's talking about. 
The four prophetic points are these. First, the prophet's own time. What was happening right then and there? The prophet is usually calling out bad stuff about the leaders, bad stuff about his own generation, issues of justice and oppression, and the way people were turning away from God. That's first. The second is the near future for the prophet's own people. What's coming right around the corner? The third prophetic point is the coming of God's Messiah as the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. But then the fourth is of his second coming of that Messiah, the time when he comes as the conquering king, the Lion of Judah who will set all things right and will eradicate sin and death once and for all, a final judgment that leads to a new heavens and a new earth. Those are the four historical moments that the prophets speak about. They can all be called a day of the Lord. And frequently all four get mashed together in the same few verses. The prophets themselves weren't always that aware of the time lapse that would separate out those four various events. And that's where people get confused. They don't separate, separate out which moment the prophet is referring to. Now, no one knows exactly when the book of Joel was written, probably around 600 B.C. Remember from last week, the nation of Israel was split into two by a civil war. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom took the name Judah. Joel was in Judah, the southern kingdom, and by the time he started preaching, judgment had already fallen on the northern kingdom of Israel. God's prophets had warned them to turn away from worshiping false gods like Baal and Moloch, but the people, the leaders, the priests, they all turned a deaf ear to those warnings. So in the year 722 BC, the Assyrian army came and just conquered the northern kingdom, started massive deportations of all the people. They never returned from that. The people of Judah were able to forge kind of a tenuous peace with the Assyrians, and they, so they kept the wolf at bay. And the Assyrians, eventually, because there's always a bigger fish, they were gobbled up by the Babylonians. For our man Joel, he first is speaking about Judah's near future, about something real that is going to happen to them in a very short time. The Babylonian army is on the move, and Joel is warning the people of Judah that unless they turn back to God, the Babylonians are going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Joel uses a recent natural disaster as a metaphor for what is about to happen. Massive swarms of locusts had ravaged the land of Judah, had eaten all the crops. It was a natural uh, disaster of epic proportions because it meant possible starvation for the people. Chapter 1, verse 4, talks about these locusts. He says it this way. There will be signs... I'm sorry. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail for your drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Wow, those are some tough locusts. The bugs have stripped the country bare. All the drinkers are, are in trouble because there's no grain left to make alcohol. They're going on a forced detox. And so Joel uses this imagery of the locust swarm to describe an even greater danger. 
The famine and economic disaster caused by the locusts puts Judah in a weakened condition. And without divine intervention, they were going to be easy pickings for the Babylonians. The people of Judah needed to get their house in order with God, turn back to him. Otherwise, God would allow history to take its course and the Babylonians would descend on them just like the locusts did and strip their nation bare. He describes the Babylonians this way in chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountain rage. A large and mighty army comes. Such as never was in ancient times. Nor never will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours. Behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste. And nothing escapes from them. Joel's solution is for people to turn towards God, sincerely admit their misdeeds, honor the Lord as their true God, root out the injustice and the idolatry that fills their land. And did they listen? No. No. So in the year 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, started a siege against Jerusalem, eventually starved them out. Cannibalism broke out in the city. It was a gruesome end for Judah. But that's not the end of the story for Joel. Yes, the people of Judah experienced the full force of their turning from God. The day of the Lord was upon them. The locusts were symbolic of what the Babylonians did to them. But Joel also spoke of a day of restoration, a day of new beginnings, a day of hope for all people. He looked forward to another mountaintop, the day of the Lord when the Messiah would come, a time when God's Spirit would be poured out in a new way. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Joel looked past the painful future of Judah to a larger blessing, another day of the Lord. And we don't even have to speculate as to what he was talking about because in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter interprets it for us. And when the Bible interprets itself, you don't have to look for any other answers. There aren't any like secret little messages in the text as some people suppose. As the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles, they preach to the God and the crowd in, in God-given languages of the listeners from all over the world. And Peter says clearly, Acts 2.16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote the passage that I just read for you. This is Joel's good news to us spoken through the apostle Peter. We now live in the age of the Holy Spirit, fully released into God's people. This age now where we can personally connect with God the Father through the Son by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is God's continuing grace poured out on us with his spirit fully ours. If it's true that God sustains and directs all things, then life is not a series of disconnected dots. If God is a God, then he has authority over everything. And that means over every situation you will face. You can face an uncertain future because you know a certain God. We may not be able to see clearly his purpose or his plan, but we know the Lord is in firm control of the universe 
and nothing surprises him. Our good God is the overseer of the stormy world. And there are storms, no doubt about it. There will be storms in your life. But in the storm, God provides a path to safety. And so we look ahead and we see God's spirit at work in us and at work in all the situations that we will face. And he can be trusted with your ultimate good. God's presence poured out into your life. That's the promise of Joel. The hope, the spirit is alive, moving, active. A church where we can trust in Christ. We can turn to him. There's going to be a lot of locusts in the world. There are going to be storms. There are going to be high winds. But those storms should actually just push us closer to God. God is greater so that we can depend on his grace and his mercy. We turn to Christ. We find refuge for our battered souls. Is there a lot of doom and gloom in Joel? Yes. But there's also a powerful message of hope. The Holy Spirit poured out into your life. I want to suggest you do one thing this week. And that's memorize just one verse from the prophet Joel. Joel 3.16. Not John 3.16, which is probably the most familiar passage in the whole Bible. Joel 3.16. A great word of hope. It goes like this. The Lord will be a refuge for his people. A stronghold for the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for men like Joel who had a tough job. Not a, it was a thankless job to try and bring your message to turn, to repent, to make a change before it was too late. People didn't want to hear that message. People don't want to hear that message today. We think things will go on forever and we won't ever be accountable. But there is a day of accountability coming, Lord. And I thank you that along with that message, that troubling message, you gave Joel a vision of greater hope, that we can now live right now into this time when the Holy Spirit is poured out into us. And may we take advantage of that, Lord, and really revel in the fact that we now connect with you powerfully through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Unleash the Spirit into our hearts today so that we might fully serve you. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.